Romans chapter 5, and we're reading verses 1 to 11. Paul's describing the great salvation uh, that God has provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In the minds of many people, Christianity is all about something we do. They'd be able to tell you a number of things that they believe Christians do, and they would see it as a kind of lifestyle choice. Some choose to live in a Christian way, others live in different ways, maybe following a religion, it may be following no religion. But they would think of Christianity perhaps as a set of practices to adopt, going to church, perhaps reading uh, the Bible, perhaps some habits to break, things that Christians don't approve of and don't do. So perhaps if you're a Christian, then again, there are uh, bad habits that you'll have to conquer. Maybe a set of standards to follow. Again, if you're a Christian, there will be certain uh, values you will hold, uh, and again, things that you will do as well as things that you don't do. Maybe in the minds of many people, it's more what Christians don't do uh, that they might be aware of. And perhaps again in the minds of people, along with those uh, lifestyle choices and the things that Christians do and don't do, uh, well, there's a set of beliefs, isn't there, if you're a Christian, uh, like ticking off uh, a certain list of beliefs, beliefs about God, about the world, about human life. To many people, a set of beliefs that are utterly incredible uh, in the 21st century, but that's Christians for you, of course. To many, we're caught in a kind of 
time warp believing things that most people gave up generations, if not centuries ago. But Christians are people who've decided to live in a certain way. And as long as they don't try to tell anybody else that they should live that way, well, perhaps we'll be tolerated. Of course, there are the more extreme kinds of Christians, aren't there? Uh, As people view them, the fundamentalists, nobody wants to be labeled a fundamentalist, fundamentalists who will go around saying that Christianity is the only right way to live. But they're so extreme, of course, most people will write them off immediately. But in the minds of most, Christianity is something people do. And Christian practices then, of course, can be compared and contrasted with the followers of other religions, for example, or the lifestyle of those who don't have any religion. And they can be set side by side and studied and examined. Uh, It can become a whole academic subject. It's significant indeed uh, that many universities, uh, you won't have actually now a faculty of theology. That's out. It'll be maybe religious studies or something like that. Because you've got to be wide and accepting and uh, generous to all. And Christianity is one lifestyle choice among others. But such a view of Christianity is fundamentally wrong. It's utterly wrong, in fact. Christianity, yes, of course, does involve issues of lifestyle and things that we will do and certain practices that will characterize us. That certainly is the case. But actually, Christianity is, first of all, not about anything that we do. It's, first of all, about what God has done for us. We start off with us. And what we do and how we live and what we do and don't do, we've missed the point. We've missed the heart of the matter. Christianity is first and foremost about what God has done for us. And that's what we want to focus on in our time together this morning. We're going to turn to a verse that we read earlier in our service in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 5, and we're focusing on verse 8. There are many uh, verses that we could pick from that passage. Uh, Maybe if you're a sermon spotter, uh, you'll have tried to guess uh, which verse we might have picked. Maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong, but it's verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're looking at Romans 5 and verse 8, uh, and we've given our study today the title, When He Knew the Worst. When He Knew the Worst, because that's telling us something about the God who's described here. But he knew the worst. As we look at this verse, wonderful uh, verse that gets right to the heart of the gospel, the first thing we see here so clearly is God's 
love. God's love. The salvation that Christians enjoy, that many of us here today have experienced, has its origin outside ourselves. It's not something within us that we are particularly good people or religious people or whatever it might be that leads to salvation. Salvation comes from outside us. It has its origin entirely outside us. And Paul tells us here that salvation has its origin in God himself. That's where we have to start when we think about salvation. We start with God. God demonstrates his own love for us. There's the beginning of salvation. And Paul really emphasizes this. He could have written, God demonstrates his love for us. But he makes it even stronger. God demonstrates his own love for us. So there's no mistake. It's as clear as it could possibly be. God demonstrates his own love for us. There mustn't be any misunderstanding about the origin of salvation where it all starts out. It's in God's own love. When we think about salvation, it demonstrates to us, it reveals to us the very love of God. And that's a surprise perhaps to some. You know very well to many people that the chief characteristic of the Christian God, if they think about him at all, is that he's a God who likes to strike down those who disobey him. He's fundamentally a God of wrath, a God who delights in the destruction of sinners. That to many is what Christians believe about God, a God who will come and strike down those who disobey him, like a great tyrant up in the sky. That's their view of the Christian God, a God to be wary of, a God to avoid if you can possibly do it, a God to hide from. But that isn't an accurate view of God at all. Now, we're not denying for a moment that God hates sin and God will punish sin. We're not suggesting that the God of the Bible is a God who's nice to everybody and really too nice to keep anybody out of heaven. No, God does hate sin. He's not a God who is indifferent to the evil that we see in the world. And the truth is, if he were that kind of God, that he didn't really care about evil, we wouldn't want anything to do with him. If God could look on the evil that we see in the world around us and it didn't matter to him, that would be a God that wouldn't be worth a moment's attention on our part. No, he's not indifferent to evil. But listen to what we read in Ezekiel chapter 33 in the Old Testament. 
God says there, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. That's very different from the common caricature of God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's not a God who delights to strike down anybody who disobeys him. But we can say more than that. Because in 1 John chapter 4, in verse 16, we read, God is love. That doesn't contradict in any way God's hatred of evil. But God is love. That's his very nature. If we were to ask, what is God's basic characteristic? That is it. God is love. And it's a love that has been made visible. We don't have to wonder, what does God's love look like? Paul tells us here in this verse, God demonstrates his own love for us. He's made it visible. It's not hidden. You don't have to search for it and and wonder where you might possibly find God's love. He's demonstrated it in the most public way in certain historical events. He's made it visible in what he has done for undeserving sinners through the work of Christ. That's where God demonstrates his own love for us. It's in the work of Christ. And so we can say that if you want to understand the work of Christ then you must think of the love of God. And if you want to know what the love of God looks like, then you must look at Christ and think of his work. God's love. God demonstrates his own love for us. God is love. That is his fundamental characteristic. And those who would portray him as first and foremost wrathful and vengeful and a a hating God are caricaturing him. God's love. That is where salvation begins. And if you don't see God's love, you'll never understand salvation. God's love. But then secondly, Paul writes here about man's sin. Man's sin. Because we have to ask, well, why is there a need for God's love to be expressed in this way? Might God not have demonstrated his love in other ways? And indeed, of course, he does in providing food and clothing and shelter and all sorts of of blessings. But why does God demonstrate his love in the work of Christ? Why is that needed? And Paul gives us a clear answer here. While we were still sinners. A hard truth that can be very difficult to accept. 
A hard truth that many people would resist and not want to accept. Why do we were still sinners? A hard truth about the kind of people we are by nature. Sinners who are separated from a holy God by our disobedience and our self-centeredness and all that the Bible describes as sin. We're sinners. However unpopular an idea that may be, however politically incorrect that might be nowadays, we can't escape that fact about us. We are sinners. That is our predicament. That's the hole in which we find ourselves and from which we cannot escape. That's why Paul speaks earlier in the chapter when we were powerless. And spiritually we are. As descendants of Adam, our first parent, we are sinners like him. We share his fallenness and his sinfulness. That's our nature. And that is also our lifestyle choice. We choose to live for ourselves. Ultimately, that's what motivates us. Not any desire for God, but for self. We're sinners and we cannot change ourselves. We're powerless. Well, we may try New Year resolutions. We may try to beat habits. But ultimately, we can't change ourselves at the deepest level. Maybe you've tried it and you know it won't last. Put very strikingly in Jeremiah 13, Questions asked, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? And the answer, of course, is no. And it's just as difficult for a sinner to change his sinful heart and soul. We can't do it. And the consequences of our sin are terrible. This isn't a trivial thing. This isn't one or two wee bad habits that We'd prefer they they weren't there, but they don't matter very much. But this matters tremendously because Paul writes in Romans 1 of how the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. There is wrath. We are not airbrushing out the wrath of God. He's a holy God. And his wrath rests on every sinner. That's all of us by nature, the Bible says. And that's going on now. And ultimately, the Bible says, we're all going to stand before God. We're told in 2 Corinthians 5, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. All of every one of us sitting here today will one day appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And there isn't one of us that deserves to be found not guilty when we stand in that court because we're all sinners and we're all guilty before a holy God. And if we're just left to ourselves as sinners, we have no hope. We can't change ourselves. We can't satisfy God's demands. We're sinners. We're lost. 
were without hope. And hence the, the wonder of God showing his own love to people like that while we were still sinners. He loved us. When in his perfect knowledge of every corner of our lives, he knew all our sin and our disobedience. When he looked on us and could see nothing but sin, Paul says he loved sinners like that. When we weren't making any effort to come to him, when we weren't trying our best to be good moral people, God demonstrates his own love for us. When he knew the worst about us. That's where we get our title. When he knew the worst about us. He loved us. That's amazing. We can understand loving the lovable. Something in them that draws our love. But to love those in whom God could see nothing. Nothing good. Nothing attractive. And yet he loved us. It is truly amazing. Loved before he even created the world, the Bible tells us. Thought about that recently. Love before time began. He loved sinners like us. It's a great word we often use in relation to salvation, grace. The Bible says it's by grace that you're saved. And what is grace? Grace is God's love to people who deserve no blessing and no favor. In fact, people who deserved his wrath and his judgment. And to love people like that, that is grace. And salvation is all about God's grace. A God who demonstrates his own love for us in this. It is why we were still sinners. He's provided what we need. God's love. Man's sin. And set the two side by side. And it's amazing. We should often think of the contrast. God's love and what we were by nature, sinners, that he should love us. If the Bible didn't tell us that was true, we wouldn't dare believe it. He couldn't make it up. That's the gospel. God's love. Man's sin. And finally, Christ's death. Christ's death. How does God, in his love, address our sin? What does he do about it? How does he demonstrate his own love for sinners like you and like me? Many passages in the scriptures tell us the wonderful words that many people still would be familiar with in John 3.16. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Salvation. He provided his Son. And God's love towards sinners, providing for our salvation, entails, as Paul tells us here, Christ died for us. The death of Christ is crucial to the gospel. You can't take the death of Christ out of the gospel and still have a gospel. There is no good news for sinners if Christ didn't die. It's not enough to have a Christ who came and said some interesting, stimulating things. Or a Christ who came and did some miracles. Amazing. Or a Christ who was a good example of, of how we'd like people to live their lives. If that is all Christ is, he's no use to you and to me as sinners. We can simply forget about him. He's no use to us. People think they're honoring Jesus when they talk about a good teacher and a good example. They're not. They're dishonoring him because their view of Jesus is so low compared to what he really is. The death of Christ is essential. There is no hope for sinners apart from the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who's the eternal Son of God, who shares our human nature, who's lived a life of perfection that we haven't lived, and who eventually died on the cross to deal with our sin. Without that death, there's no hope for sinners. Without that death, there's no good news to preach. If Jesus didn't die on the cross, I might as well go home now and get on with life and forget about him because there's nothing he can do for me and there's nothing he can do for you. But praise God he did die. He died on the cross in the place of sinners like us. And we need to understand the necessity for Christ's death. Why did he have to die? We need to realize, as the Bible tells us, Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. That's what you and I deserve because of our sin. Not just death that puts our bodies in the ground, but eternal death, separation from God forever under his judgment. And that's what we are earning by our sin. That's the payment that's due to you and to me. And if we are not to die that death, if we are to avoid that death, then someone must take it in our place. We need a substitute. Someone to die the death we ought to die. And that's why Christ died. The Lord Jesus, the Son of God, is the substitute. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. He's righteous. He's perfectly holy. He's never sinned. And he dies for unrighteous people like us, sinners. And he takes God's wrath and he takes the punishment that's due to us 
He's paid the price in full. And you see, it's God himself, God the Son, in the person of Jesus Christ, who does that. The God we've offended, the God whose law we've broken, the God against whom we sin, has provided salvation in the death of his Son. Christ died for us to take our guilt and our sin and all the mess that our sins have produced and he takes our place and he bears everything that's due to his people. Salvation flows from God's love. Love that he set on sinners like us when he knew the worst about us, the very worst. God was under no illusions when he provided salvation in Christ. No illusions. He knew the worst and he loved us. We should never lose the wonder that's at the heart of the gospel. You sometimes find yourself almost taking it for granted. I'm thinking, yes, Christ died for me and I'm saved. And what's remarkable about that? And we've lost the wonder. Because it is a wonder. It's almost, almost beyond belief. that God should do that for such people. And he did. He did. And now, because Christ died for sinners like us, salvation is freely available for anyone who trusts in him for salvation. He's paid the price. You can't pay the price. You can't contribute to the price. You couldn't. You could not do one good work that contributed to your salvation, but Christ has done it all. That's why the gospel's good news. If the gospel came to sinners like us and told us you have to do this and this and this in order to be right with God, we're powerless. It would be bad news. But the gospel comes and tells us God has done this for sinners like you in the death of Christ and all that's called forth from us is to believe in Christ and accept the gift of salvation because the price has already been paid when he knew the worst about us. Does that fill you with wonder? Are you amazed by God's love when you think about it? Are you trusting in the Christ who died for sinners? God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 